Welcome to TA1, everything you want to know about adventure racing and then some. I'm your host, legendary Randy Erickson. have the chili dog here, or leaving the room. Must be my voice. Um, what are we, 10 days roughly to Cowboy Tough? And I thought maybe I'd spend a little time uh, talking about some of the teams. Looks like this year is going to be... A uh, very fitting uh, pre-race to the World Championships next year. Um, can't not bet against uh, Adventure Medical Kits, the three-time champions, and back with a really strong team. Um, but you also got the new new team tech new. Um, well, you say there's some good racers on that team with Denise, Greg, uh, John Brown. I'm not sure who the fourth is yet, but, uh, um, you know, going to be hard to beat AMK with their experience with the race. I think the thing that will help some of the teams this year is that it is a traditional AR without the uh, out the uh, end of days. Um, we got Canada AR with... Uh, Matt Haynes, Natalie, Jason, and Charles. They're uh, getting fired up for Worlds. Uh, who else do we have here? Um, Journey should be pretty good with Katie, uh, Ian Hogue, Ryan, Julian. They've got a lot of experience um, and got some uh, good racers. Uh, got McGinley Innovations, the local team that have something to prove after last year. They had a disastrous first day. Uh, NorCal, um, who has this week's guest, Candace Hart. Um, you know, I don't know them. I mean, I know everybody, but um, I'm not sure how well they're going to work together. Naira, which could be a really good team, except they got that guy, that JD guy. Yeah, that's going to slow him down, chasing him all day. Not chasing, pulling. Uh, Silent Chasers, Phil and Kevin went up to a four-person team this year with uh, Michael Garrison and Heather Clutch. So, very experienced team there. Uh, Swedish Armed Forces, I think they got something to prove after last year. I think the heat got to them. They got a little bit more approved this year also. Um... North Face Adventure from Hong Kong. That's a, who knows? I certainly don't, but, uh, you know, let's make it international. Uh, the U.S. Military Endurance Team, Ron Flick. Um, they should do okay, but it's kind of a new team. Uh, Yoga Slackers doesn't have their roster complete yet on my list, but got... Dan, so you never count them out. Um, Steven, who raced last year, has some issues with heat, but maybe he's working that out. Um, and Jen Mu is racing with him, so that should be cool. Uh, we got outside Pearl Izumi, had a good race in Belize. Um, Odyssey Adventure Racing, let's hope Andy has a better race than he did uh, in Belize. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, they. Could use a navigator. They got this guy, what's his name, Mark Latanzi. Anyway, we'll see how he does. Shane Hagerman and Julie Kreitzer. So a bunch of really good people and really good racers. Uh, I think 
that might all be their first time at Wyoming. So we'll see. Um, got Adventure Capitalists. Let's see. I know Josh, and I don't know the rest of them, but uh, I know they've got some experience here. Then we have a all-female team, the Rev3 Kona Waini. Um, good on them. Uh, let's see, Sarah's got a lot of experience. And I'm not sure if the rest of them have been here. Um, Summit Adventure Race and Commie Bar. A little... Uh, had to find a fourth in the last few weeks. Um, my friend Tara and Mike are racing on the team, except they bought a new business. And uh, my guess is Tara has to stay home and take care of it while Mike goes and plays. And then we got Team Expendables, and I don't know them. Who else we got? We're looking here. Uh, uh, let's see. That most oh we got four extreme, um, Tom Ambrose, Hunter and Jeff Leninger and Jenny McNeil um, should be a cool team. You know Hunter is what fourteen now. Um, it won't be long before he's uh, dragging that whole team on behind him. Uh, quickly let's look at the two person teams, Nordic Adventure Racing with Helen and Jacob. Maybe my favorite video from. Uh, uh, Blaze should post a uh, link to that. Yeah, we've got Orion, three Team Steamboat people. I don't know. In the males, we've got uh, Lupine Topo with Brian Grafton and Eric Olson. Um, last time I saw Brian, he was getting married before the 100 miler in the Black Hills. Um, we've got a Montana team, Beartooth Endurance. Cloud Peak Cowboys 2, Grit and Gear, don't know him. Oh, Orange Leader Hosen with Derek and Jesse. They're always fun. Team Tumbleweeds from uh, Gillette, Wyoming. Team Wick from Washington. Trainology with John Porter, Michael Wolpert. Always uh, nostalgic picks for me, friends. I've kind of known them since the uh, Primal Quest day. And Whiskey Ben with Mike Austin and Matt Schwinn. And as they pointed out, they're going to win the extra-large T-shirt division. So It's going to be a cool race. Actually, it's going to be a hot race. It could be very, very competitive. So uh, stay tuned uh, starting on the, what, the f 19th, 14th. Yeah, The day Paulette leaves for... France and the Trans-Pyrenees will be the day the race starts. Um, the only other thing I'm going to say is I have a special treat for everybody at the race. I'm not going to say more than that. Um, we'll see all you guys there. And the rest of you, go fast, take chances, and you're going to be sorry you missed this race. Bye. Are you there? Yeah, can you hear me okay? I can hear you. I turned my, uh, my video off just because... Out here in the woods, I get better audio without any video. <laughs> right. Let's see, how do you do this? So this page is asking your camera and microphone, continue allowing, blah, blah, blah. Always block camera and microphone. Nope. Uh, yeah. Microphone default. So how would you turn the camera off? Um, on the bottom of the screen, is there like a 
a little camera icon, a microphone, and a, and a telephone. And hmm. oh yes, yeah, yeah, I see that now. Yeah, click on so, the camera one. It. There, there, you went away. Got it. Technology, cool. right, ta-da! Okay. So, well, this way the NSA can watch us. At least they can. Well, they're still watching. Just everybody else can hear. Yeah, right, right. There you go. Um, all right. So I'm going to start with the hard question. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. What? How the hell does somebody run like eight hours quicker than you did at Western States? Because you ran really well. Oh, well, you know, it's like anything when you um, you finish, you look back, and I can already see ways I could shave at least three hours off my time. So, uh, you know, I'm sure I can do that. But, you know, the, the funny thing is I don't think it's hard to run at uh, the course record pace in that, you know, we can run that fast. The question is can mm-hmm. you run it for 100 miles in that heat? And therein lies the difference. And I, I'm going to guess age may have something to do with it. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think also though in the trail running community, you've seen a big surge of uh, really talented uh, collegiate level runners entering the game as well. And so um, I think the landscape is changing. I think it's an, an evolving landscape for sure. Why, why are all the kids coming to play with the big kids? Is there nothing else for them to do? Yeah, I don't know uh, exactly because, you know, there was a kid I saw on the course who was 17 years old. His first name is Hunter. I didn't catch his last name. But he had uh, been with his father. They went to the lottery. They, uh, If you show up in person, you can just buy a ticket there. So he did, you know, not, not so much as a joke because you think you have no chance of winning. And sure enough, he wins. He gets into Western States. And Western States did not. They do now, but they did not have an official rule as far as a minimum age. So they've instituted one now that you have to be older. I think it's 18. But, but so he was at 17 and he ran the course. Um, so there's definitely some young people doing it. And when you talk to this kid, Andrew, who won Western States this year, he started running when he was 14. And uh, it's funny because they'll make a comment like, well, he just started running with his mother to you know, do some races or something. But it's like, mm-hmm. but yes, he started at 14 and found out he's gifted and uh, will yeah. now have a long career at it. But um so I'm not entirely sure. I, you know, but another thing that could be influencing that could be a generational thing. I mean, look at us in like an adventure racing and like how many second generation adventure racers are out there now or will be yeah. out there soon if they're not already. And I think we're seeing that in running as well. Cause like I can tell you my girls though, uh, far too young for this stuff. Now they're pretty into it. Like they're, you know, I can tell that they're already thinking about it, talking about it. You know, I never push them to race or do anything. But if they came up with the idea, it wouldn't be the craziest thing because you'd almost expect it from them at this point. Yeah, I think there's something to be that because, you know, like all, and, and I'm going to be a little nationalistic, but if you all the adventure racers in New Zealand and Australia that I talk to, you know, they're row gaining with their parents when they're five years old or something like that. Yeah. So it, it, they just, I don't know, they don't know anything, know any better maybe. <laughs> Well, I think that is it. You know, it just it's it's normal to them now. So they're like, yeah, this is great. Um, there's no yeah. real reason why they wouldn't do it. And uh, you know, it's like road gaining is another great example where uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's now nine, you know, I plan on taking her out to some 24-hour road gains um, because if you really want to just make it fun for the family, like 
she and I can start. We can go run the course for a while. But because we're not being competitive, we don't have to stay out all, all 24 hours, right? Yeah. So we can come back and camp and go back out at night. And it'd just be a really fun, cool adventure uh, with your family. And then you can see that's how suddenly the kid would be, like, into road gaming, you know? And they would just yeah. – they'd have so much fun doing it. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, got that part out. Um, I've been yelled at this a little bit. So would you please introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Canis Hart, and I live in Park City, Utah. And you are like – okay, you're an adventure racer, you're an ultra runner, and you're a serial business starter. Yeah, well, um, I've, I've been fortunate in that sense. I've worked in the outdoor industry for the last uh, 20 years. I you know, was in the Marine Corps, uh, came out of that while I was going to school, started working in climbing stores, uh, really just to further my uh, love of climbing, which was my driving passion for a really long time. But I've always been uh, kind of a natural runner. Uh, I've always uh, was racing a lot of triathlons back in the day and you know, enjoyed the bike and the swim and multi-sport. And, and as you're in the outdoor industry and the outdoor lifestyles, everybody who's listening to this is probably, you know, as well, you know, you start paddling and you start like, you know, in my case, I've been paragliding a lot lately and mountaineering and, you know, you, all these things come together, which leads you to adventure racing. But in my case, it also led me to a career. Um, I, you know, didn't think I was starting uh, in a career when I was going to school and working at a store, but I became aware of um, really just some friends of mine that were sales reps. And it was only then that it really kind of like, oh, there's this life you can have as a sales rep and work for these brands. And and so that's what I decided to do. I, and I was fortunate enough, a friend of mine, Topher Gaylord, who worked at the North Face, created an opportunity for me and I became a sales rep for the North Face. And that's how I got my start. And um, mm-hmm. eventually, you know, got into sales management and uh, have worked for some companies like I think most notably I, in the outdoor sphere, I worked for Patagonia and North Face for quite a while. I also um, worked for uh, Sear Designs and Ultimate Direction. And then I actually landed, uh, I had got injured. And after this, recovering from an injury where they were almost going to amputate my leg, it was like a, a relatively big injury. I had a. Um, Duh. <laughs> yeah. And so I, but I ended up um, taking time off from work. I just like, you know, I need some time to recover. and get my head about me and then went back to work for Solomon and that was a great gig. I was the uh, sales manager and the product manager for North America for all the footwear and apparel and that was back in the day that Solomon was really into adventure racing which is actually how I you know was able to really kind of get my start although there was a um, I had been looking at adventure racing back in um, I guess in 98 as an example I was asked to race on a team in the Eco Challenge it only turned it down back then because I went off to climb Denali. But um, by the time I get to Solomon and I'm, you know, just living that lifestyle, uh, it, you know, it was obvious that that was my opportunity to really get into it. Um, and then after leaving these companies, you know, that side of it, I started a business called Waterbox, which makes uh, water mm-hmm. bottles, stainless steel, plastic, yeah. glass, and uh, managed to uh, build the business up. And then we got a little too big, too fast. And next thing you know, we were bought. And the company Nathan Sports bought us, so I had to work for them for a couple of years as part of the deal. And then now I've started uh, Park City Running Company, which is a running store, uh, retail, and have a uh, something else in the back, <laughs> in the back burner, which is <laughs> kind of going. I, I think the thing is, once you 
figure out how to get businesses up and running and you've done it, then you're getting kind of hooked on it. If it fits your personality, I suppose. Yeah. Well, okay. <clears throat> Let's make the obvious uh, comparison. It's like, yeah, once you've done an adventure race, you either really like it and you keep doing it forever or never again. Is that that where kind of where the business world is for you? Yeah, I think it is because what happens is um, it, it's an insane amount of energy. It's, it's funny. I mean, there, there's a lot of parallels between adventure racing and starting your own business. As there, you know, if there's things in there like, you know, if you're adventure racing, right, like we have goals and we're uh, setting out a plan or a strategy to achieve that goal. But we're also dealing with a number of things like in the moment, right? The elements, uh, you know, how our nav was yeah. or, you know, anything that's kind of being thrown our way, weather. And so you're, oh, what's the other team's doing? So you're always adapting and adjusting it. Uh, business is the same way. You know, you, you sort of set out this goal and, you know, you just start adapting as you go and making, you know, corrections. And hopefully you're making the right corrections and you get in the right direction. But, um you know, and I think someone who starts their own businesses can work for a corporation again, but um, it's a little more challenging because in a company structure, everybody's sort of put in a box. Like, okay, you're the salesperson, so to them, they know what that means. Like, they they can identify you as the salesperson. Oh no, that's the marketing person. Like, they know what that job is. Oh no, you're the operations person, or you know, you're finance, or whatever that box is. What throws them is if you go back to a corporation and your uh, resume is like, well, yeah, sure, I did marketing. Oh, yeah, and I did sales. Oh, yeah, and I did ops. You know, like that, they don't know how to handle that. <laughs> they know how to yeah. handle like, oh, this guy's been a salesperson for 20 years. That's a salesperson. I hire that person. Um, and it's and it's funny because uh, the people that do that, are, it's not conscious. It's just sort of a subconscious thing that you can see happening. And in the, uh, the entrepreneurial side of it, you literally just have to be a jack of all trades. But it doesn't mean you have to do everything. I, I think that's one of the things that, you know, a lot of times it stops people is like, well, I don't know how to do that. And you're like, well, you hire someone who can do that. <laughs> you know, like you can mm -hmm. find somebody with the expertise. The challenge in the early days of a business is how do you do it in an affordable way? Uh, it's easy to do things if you're just throwing money at it. It's uh, more difficult yeah. to do it when you're doing it, you know, you're bootstrapping it, you don't have a lot of money and you're trying to get the business to actually make money. Uh, that's that, therein lies the real challenge of it all. Yeah, well, yeah, and it's all easy if you throw enough money. Um, yeah, and 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 don't worry because we're going to get to adventure racing. But I've kind of found with the podcast that it's really interesting to hear these other stories about you guys. Oh yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about anything. Yeah. Um. So when you started, okay, so. You go to do an adventure race, an expedition race. You spend six months getting ready. You got the two days when you're at the venue, you know, running to Walmart ten times. And it just gets easier when the gun goes off. Is there a point when you're starting a business when the gun goes off? <laughs> that you, you, you know, it's not yeah. successful by any means, but it, but there's the the uh, work get changes or something is there sort of that equivalent no i think there is it's uh it's a little gray or a little nebulous as to like when that is but um you know maybe one way to compare it is so you know you get to the uh, the race venue and you're kind of waiting to get your maps and stuff and you're as best as you can figure it you know you make sure your gears there is all sorted you're kind of trying to plan it you're figuring out mm -hmm. you got your navigator and who's going to 
co-nav and like who's going to work the maps, who's going to prep gear. You know, you're doing all that kind of stuff. You get the maps and then you're like, at least in these expedition races, you know, potentially you could spend hours upon hours, you know, like, you know, just working through so many maps trying to like figure out the route and all that stuff. And it's just all consuming. And then at least when you get to the race, you know, there's that, to your point, you start and then you just get to the business of racing. Um, in business, that's a bit like in the early stages, you know, you have to figure out really basic things like, okay, we got to get business insurance. I've got to get furniture. I've got to get, you know, a space. I've got to get licenses. I've got to get the products that we're going to sell. I got to, what all these things. It feels a little bit like the beginning of the race where, you know, it's just like a big pile of stuff you got to be able to work through and chip away at. But at some point in the business side of it, you get to the day to day of just running it where, you know, you may have a team and maybe plenty busy and all of that. But it starts to become a little bit more of a repetitive cycle. Like, okay, today I wake up, I sell. Tomorrow I wake up, I sell. The next day I wake up and I sell. Um, mm-hmm. And it's never as, as simple as just having a singular thing in business, especially if you're starting it and you own it because yeah. you may be spending all your time fundraising or, you know, visiting people. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. that that might be the cl- uh, closest parallel to it. Like, there's a beginning phase when you may have just huge lists of paper where you just are writing down an endless list of all the things you have to do just to get this thing off the ground. And then there's a phase when you're kind of just running it and adventure racing, maybe like that, you know, for the pre-race to when the gun goes off and then you're actually in the business of racing it. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, did you always want to do retail? Cause it seems like that's kind of a little bit different than, than the other stuff that you described that you've been doing. Yeah, it's very different. You know, I mean, um, w- once I sold in business to Nathan, I was their vice president of licensing and innovation. And uh, I spent really, I was flying a couple hundred thousand miles a year. I spent my time in China and throughout Southeast Asia developing um, and engineering products and vendor compliance and social compliance issues with factories. And, you know, like, so it's such a different animal than retail, obviously. <laughs> and then even prior to that, you know, when I left Solomon, I, I moved out to Park City with Rosignol. But in both cases, I was, you know, the VP of sales and marketing and product. So in that case, like, I'm over in France all the time. I was just basically working in some of the most beautiful spots of the world throughout Europe and the U.S. Um, retail is such a different animal. It's not a, a get-rich scheme kind of venture. It's something you do out of passion and because, you know, uh, you're really into it. In my case, uh, one thing that was slightly different is that uh, there is or was no other running stores in Park City. So it was almost like a call to action. Like, I can't believe we don't have a running store. This is crazy. And then by chance, a friend of mine owns the shopping center. I didn't know this at the time, but it kind of came up casually in a conversation where um, I think we were talking about restaurants or something. And uh, I mentioned the cost of a commercial lease, but I, I think I knew too many details. Enough that he looked at me and he goes, <laughs> wait a minute, why, why are you looking at commercial real estate? And then I kind of sheepishly told him the idea because, you know, it's not like you're starting the next Facebook, right? So, you know, you're, yeah. you know, you're like, hey, I'm going to do this retail store. But he, um, without, you know, missing a beat, uh, Dave looks at me and he goes, you know, I own Corio Village, don't you? And I'm like, no, I had no idea. And he's like, well, come on, I'll give you, I'll give you free rent. You just go in there. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so, um, that, you know, a lot of times luck comes into this stuff. And that was one mm-hmm. of those things where. You know, I gave Dave some equity and he gave me free rent and uh, I'm like, all right, let's, and I was on a non-compete clause. I couldn't work in the industry doing my old gig anyway. So I was like, all right, let's do that. And, um, and you know, that's how it came to be. And then of course, 
uh, you wish like you could just have an adventure racing store. I mean, that would be super cool. Um, yeah. But you know, obviously, you know, we got to like buy our goods through outdoor and running and bike and and whatnot. So w- in the context of running stores, you end up just basically being surrounded by a bunch of other runners. In our case, our store is very much a trail running store. Uh, mm-hmm. We're road. Uh, we sell probably half as much road of not more, but most stores in the country would sell like 90, 95% road running shoes and 5% trailer. Most of that's light duty at best because we're in the mountains. Um, you yeah. know, we are probably 50, 50 trail the road and, um, almost all the employees are some uh, level of an ultra runner or trail runner of some type. And so the store has a bit of a reputation around here for that, which, you know, at first I was a little fearful of like limiting us. Um, but really, I don't know. I think it's a good thing, you know. Just sort of own it. Just own who you are and be it. And you know, at least we're known for something. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's been yeah. good. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say from you know stalking on Facebook and stuff, you certainly are putting a lot back into the running community already. So. Oh yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea. Like, you know, I've always believed, and I still do. And I, and I told our employees in the beginning, I'm like, look, if we just take care of runners as runners ourselves and provide great service, good things will happen. And so that's kind of like what our decision making, you know, filter is, is like, is it something that's beneficial to the running community? And if it is, we do it. If it doesn't seem like it's uh, in line with the running community, then we just sort of stay out of it. Yeah. That makes sense. How hard is it? Because, you, you know, you said... Yeah, let's. You'd like to open an adventure race store, but that's what your heart says. But your head says no. We got to sell running shoes. It's it's like a bike shop wants to sell five thousand dollar downhill bikes, but they make their money on the two hundred twenty nine dollar, you know, sidewalk bike. So, yeah, I mean, was it hard to not stock compasses and kayaks and paddles and climbing gear and? Well, you know, truth be told, I haven't ever ruled it out. Like, as if you know, yeah. like, you know, if there was ever a way we could inch into that model, I would really be excited about it. Um, I, I do think that that opportunity is out there, but um, in our case, you know, right now it's just easier to be just pure running. So it doesn't yeah. feel the same as, like, say, selling the the cheap model when you want to sell the nice model. Yeah, ironically, you know, one of the funny things about living in Park City is we have a hard time selling the inexpensive models and it's the, uh, you know, the most expensive <laughs> items. Like we sell like crazy because like we had a gentleman who came in the store today and he goes, Hey, how's it going? I'm like, good. He goes, what's the newest shoe out? And we showed him some new, uh, Solomon S lab shoe, this new wings that we have really released. So it was $180. He's like, he goes in, uh, one of our employees said, yeah, we just got these in. We, we got them 30 days in advance or everybody else he goes, great. I'll take two. <laughs> You're like, okay. <laughs> you know, that that's park city for you. <laughs> like, there we have you go. plenty of normal people here, but we have a lot of that too. So, um, you know, we do get to sell all the fun, cool running stuff. And, you know, if someone came in here and wanted like a hydration vest, one thing you'd find different is like we have every single vest Solomon and Ultimate Direction make in every size and every color and two or three of them. You know, it's like, so so we do get to have, have fun in that way. You know, like we just get to bring yeah. in the really cool running stuff. That's interesting. Um, our sh- and, and okay, no, everybody knows I'm not a mental giant, but are are shoe stores, running shoe stores, maybe in particular, a little bit immune to the internet because people still want to come try on shoes? 
No, uh, definitely not. And, um, okay. you know, you definitely have these people that will come in. It's interesting because, like, you know, like, I'm all for a good deal. Like, so if you can get a good deal, that's great. Yeah. You know, go for it. Um, but, you know, you'll have people that will come in, and they'll spend all this time, like, looking around, asking the employees questions, having them try on shoes. And more often than not, you can see them on their phone searching the Internet, or you overhear them yeah. talking to their family member. Okay, make sure you get all the information. We can buy this cheaper online. Yeah. Which is like, you know, if you think about it, it's a pretty scummy thing to do. I mean, it's like, okay, so some person is yeah. paying rent, they're paying utilities, they paid that employee, and you're going to go <laughs> save five bucks someplace because you just got to get the deal. It's like, you didn't save five bucks, you just stole it from us or from someone else who paid that person to do that for you. You know, if you can yeah. get like the shoe that's like half off, yeah, go for it. Like, get the crazy deals. Like, you know, absolutely. And then come see us when you need like your regular thing. Um, we're pretty lucky though. So I don't know about running in general. I, I think that's probably a, a challenge for all retail now, but you know, yeah. I look at it differently in that we're new. Um, so the internet already exists. People already do that. We already have an outlet center right a mile from us. Um, so the way I see it, we're just going to keep providing the great service. We're not going to worry about that. You know, I see it more as like future customers. We'll just win them over down the road. Like, you know, and then we offer things like, a 30-day satisfaction guarantee even if you've been running in them outside so you can literally get some shoes from us go run in them for a month on the trails and if it's just not the shoe you want or love for any reason you just come back and we'll exchange it for you you know so i think there's ways for retail mm. to deal with internet i think some people are just going to be inclined to to do that and then you know there's those people that really just don't go into retail at all that um, shop online uh, you know, I, yeah. like I said, I just see them, they're future customers. That's just somebody who at some point is going to like it. And then in our case, we have a, a full coffee shop, uh, you know, with coffee and smoothies and food in our running store. And um, I don't think we'll do it this summer, but maybe next summer, I'm thinking we'll apply for a beer and wine license. And so we'll be mm -hmm. a running store serving coffee and beer and stuff. And, um, I, you know, we're just creating other reasons for people to come to our store. And uh, if they, like I said, if they find some great deal online, go for it, you know. Just don't pretend you're trying to like go home and go home and think about it when you know yeah. you're not. You know, just just tell yeah. us what you're doing. We'll probably just help you out anyways. Yeah. You know, it's like, but anyways, you know that. So it, yeah, it's changing the the face of retail, and I think people will have to ultimately make a decision. Like I obviously have a bias because um, obviously now I have a store, but but even before that, you know, in working in this outdoor industry and as a sales rep, I've always been interacting with and calling on uh, mom and pop owned uh, retail stores before I did all the national account and international stuff. But I honestly believe that those stores in all of our communities, those are the people that live in that community. And that's kind of, when you really think about it, you support those stores, you're supporting your community and uh, you get that real local experience. I think it's on the store to provide great service and have the products and a great price. But, you know, I think we all benefit when we take care of our fellow uh, community members by shopping locally. Yeah. Well, I'm venting here a little bit. I was at the Best Buy looking for something, and they had one. I was like, yeah. good, I'll take it. Like, oh, no, that's a display. We can have you one by July 10th. Right. And I, and I, I, I said to him, I said, I can go home, I can go to Amazon, and I can have it tomorrow. But, yep. you know, I specifically came here because, you know, it's, you know, it's the same cost and you're local. And well, and that's the other thing guess what? that I think they didn't care. Yeah, especially retail stores sometimes yeah. get in trouble because they don't have the inventory. Like they rely on a model of 
just having a few to show and then call up and order it for you. And like, you know, we'll do that for somebody. Like if they've got, uh, oh, I don't know, something special they want, we don't care. We'll order it for them. But um, that was it. One of our strategies was to always have an in-stock position so that, you know, you need to know that you can come to our store and try on some good shoes and find the thing you want. You know, the hard part is like in the case of shoes is like we can have like three or four of one size and just sell them in like a couple of days. And then all of a sudden you're caught off guard. You got to reorder it, and then um, it just takes a while to get it. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know that happens. But I think you're right. Like that's the other reason to shop online, right? Is like if someone doesn't have the inventory of the stock you want, uh, and because they've made that model easy. But you know, we actually sell shoes on Amazon too. We just do it yeah. through a different store name, and that's where we sell all of our closeouts and stuff. And it's huge. Like the the volume difference for a retailer. Uh, we sold, I think it was like 87 pair of shoes in the first week and a half we put them on Amazon. And if we had sold four pair of those on closeout, we would have been ecstatic over the weekend. And all of a sudden, 87 oh. pair were gone. Of the 92, we shipped them. So um, oh. I think the other thing for specialty retail is going to be figuring out how to work with the online component. And you know, we could essentially have someone working almost full-time on just how to sell on Amazon, even though I don't really want to sell on Amazon, it's just that's the vehicle right now to do it. Yeah, well, if you want, when you're done, send me your link to the Amazon store so we can sell you sell some more closeout shoes. Yeah, right, exactly. So, um, all right, let's let's talk adventure racing. We probably I I think this is really interesting because you know everything is changing so much with the internet. So it's interesting to see your point of view. But um, so you had so let's go back. How did you start? I mean, you didn't you didn't go to Eco Challenge because you went to Denali. So why did you? What was your first race then? Uh, you know, my first race uh, was a twenty four hour race up on the east side of the uh, Cascade Mountains there, and um, it was uh, Solomon Crew. We we put together a few of us. We well, actually had two teams of employees and went up and uh, did this 24-hour race. And uh, I don't know, somehow I ended up being the captain and like the navigator and just, uh, you know, we kind of got after it. We were horribly slow, like, you know, the classic, just trying to figure everything out. And, um, but at the same time, you know, absolutely caught the bug. Like, you know, it was really good. The nav went really well. The race was super fun. Um, and then that was sort of, at that point it was, I was done for Like I just knew that's what I was doing. And I had always wanted to be adventure racing anyways, even from when it was like, uh, first becoming popular, uh, or popular within our circles, let's say. But, you know, to me, it was always this great combination of all these things that I already did. So I was like, great. I already love to do all these things. Here's a way now to race and, uh, put it to use and, you know, see what I can do with it. Yeah. Um, all right. Were you good at any one thing before you started, or were you like a lot of adventure racers? You were just okay at a lot of things. Um, well, it's enough. Like probably one of the things that I was really good at was you know things like say rock climbing and mountaineering. And mountaineering comes into play a little bit, but rock climbing really does it. You know the climbing stuff we do in adventure racing is you know, almost anybody could do it. You know just you know jugging up ropes and rappelling down and stuff. There's it's uh, like, you know, in my heart of hearts, the, the real adventure race I would like to put on 
is a bit more of a cross-country race that involved actual climbing and rappelling and things that were necessary to move from point A to point B. You know, it's hard in a race environment where sometimes, you know, it's my own pet peeve, but sometimes races get very contrived where, you know, they just start, I don't know, like, like say take an uh, Eco Challenger Primal Quest type race, you know, of and uh, yeah, even this most recent one, right, because at least it was part on the old Tahoe course, but yeah. Like one thing those races do, the characteristic of it, right, is like they flow. They're all about movement. So you're not always on super technical stuff. You may be on like fire roads and roads or whatever it is. But and the nav isn't usually very hard. I mean, it's it's hard in the the greater scale of what you're doing. But they're really just trying to get you to move. Um, I kind of like that. Um, I don't really like when they put in these games and puzzles and stuff. Like to me, that's just not what I look for in adventure races. Um, I had a hard enough time back when rollerblading was like an in part of it, you know, and then I can scale. I don't think, yeah, I used to I don't think and, anybody misses rollerblading. No, no. Like, I mean, I was such an inline skate rat as a kid and a roller skater when I was even younger. But so like, you think I would like that stuff, but it just wasn't like my cup of tea. Uh, and luckily the only time I really had to do it was that race out of McCall, Idaho, which, you know, had a bunch of it. But, um, yeah, but you know, so I, I don't know. I, I just kind of feel like, as far as sports go, the, the things that I was probably best at don't come into play as much. Running, I was always a pretty good runner, and I could mm-hmm. cycle really well. So the the upside is I'm I can be on my feet for long periods of time and be comfortable. I can you know bike uh, you know fairly well, which is good. So um, course strength there, and not a, a a great whitewater boater, but I paddled some class four in my kayak and. But I'd say a really competent class three paddler, you know, with some class four, easier stuff. So, you know, Mm. bringing it back to adventure racing, though, um, you know, we don't do those things at the most difficult levels. So it all plays well for what we do. But you know what you might say, like, uh, probably my best competency was, and it goes back to my Marine Corps time, was when I was in, it was pre-GPS. I was in 85 to 89, so it kind of dates me right there, but, like, GPS is really we're just kind of coming out, but you know you learn to navigate. And I was in a Marine Corps reconnaissance team, and so all we were doing was going on patrol for a week or two, and you're just navigating around with map and compass. And for whatever reason, I could always do it. I could just do it and do it pretty well. And so um, you know, thus I still love orienteering and all that stuff. But I think as far as adventure racing goes, that always helped my ability to be able to navigate. You know, luckily, you know, you race with other strong navigators and then you're not the only person, but um, that was probably my core competency. Yeah. So um, did you learn to navigate in the Marines? I did, yeah. did you have any, any um, how do they teach you? Because <laughs> they they've got to do a pretty good job of teaching a lot of people pretty good navigation. Yeah. You know, so it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that hard for the normal person to learn. But it seems like it can be. Yeah, I think it can be. I think one of the differences, though, like, um, you know, so it depends on – so the military is an interesting thing. Like, you know, 10% of the military is essentially the fighting force, and, like, 90% is some sort of operational logistics, you know, support piece. Mm-hmm. And uh, and sometimes those guys get caught up in the combat stuff as well. But so they, there's a lot of people in the military that they have desk jobs and stuff. So most people probably have no sense of navigation or any idea how to do it. Um, So they're really teaching like just the people that are in charge or in our case as reconnaissance uh, units, you know, everybody had to be able to navigate. So then you benefit from, uh, they could literally just go out for a week and just, you'd be outside navigating. And so, and they would do kind of funny things. Like one of the funny things I sort of appreciate about the military is like, 
Well, like, and this has nothing to do with them actually teaching the straight-up navigation, but just as an example of their sort of logic is, like, they wanted to teach us one time how not to make noise. Like, if you say you had to go through a thorn bush and you, you uh, cut yourself, they don't want you to go, like, you know, swear out loud or something. Yeah. So their logic is, okay, great, let's just run them back and forth through the thorn bushes so they learn to be quiet. And so <laughs> every time you'd make noise, you'd go back through, and then, like, eventually you figure it out, like, how to be quiet going through there. And so they're really about, like, uh, hands-on, like, you know, practical mm-hmm. training. And so, I, you know, I thought it was great. Like, we just sat out on hillsides with maps. And then you had to mm-hmm. uh, you would get tested on, like, uh, terrain, you know, reading terrain on the maps and what was out in front of you. Their uh, orienteering was uh, a lot like, you know, a typical orienteering course. The difference would be uh, they have add a couple layers of difficulty to it. Um, you, like, typically are finding ammo canisters when you're out there. And they will be marked with like a, a number or uh, letters or something, but not like an orienteering where, like an orienteering, you know exactly where to go and you know that you're looking for say A34. Um, oh. The military works the opposite. Like you don't know what you're looking for, and there may be multiple cans around your can, and so you have to be spot on with your pace counting, and with your navigation, um, and so you've got to come back with the right number. And so sometimes oh. there's some that are really close, and you're like, you better know what you're doing. So there's a little bit more of a testing uh, element to it. But but generally speaking, yeah. it's like they'll just give you a list of grid coordinates, and you they say, ready, go. And then you just start plotting them, and you got to go run around these orienteering courses, and then you come back. And so the big difference being they don't tell you anything. You have to come back and prove you went to the right places. Yeah, interesting. Well, and, and you know, Makes sense in a real world situation for the military because um, there's not an orange flag where the bad guys are, right? Yeah, no, exactly. You know, it's uh, you you start to build confidence fairly quickly. Also, I see navigating in the military is a little different in that, um, you know, let's say you're inserted into one point and we're going to navigate. Uh, I don't know. Let's just say it's going to be like five or six kilometers to look at something. You know, you're doing this, you don't know it, but you're doing all the orienteering stuff. You're looking for Hanton rails and you're looking for these, okay, I'm going to cross this road. I'm looking for a riverbed. I'm going to look for this hill. Like you're, you're kind of breaking it down and doing the same thing that you do in an orienteering meet. Um, mm. The other thing, I guess the other difference for the military would be like, like in our case, you're doing everything at night and you're doing it without mm. any lights, without talking. So even the um, compass they use uh, or did, you know, back in the day, you had to like memorize how many clicks because you couldn't see the compass as much. You could only open it up undercover to see, you know, the arrow for a little bit. But you're basically just clicking, like turning it left or right, counting the number of clicks, and in your head keeping track of the math to make sure you're on the right azimuth uh, when you head yeah. out there. Uh, the interesting thing is, like, the hardest navigation I've ever done is a lot of underwater navigation uh, when you're on, you know, uh, scuba tanks or a dragger system and. You just have a compass board in front of you. And what's weird is, you know, it's easy enough to, like, set an azimuth and stay on it. Uh, but when you're underwater, what throws you is the terrain underneath you, if you can see it. Like, like outside, you know where a mountain is or you know where a valley is or a draw or whatever it is. Yeah. Underwater, you don't really know all that stuff. And all of a sudden, it looks like you're, land, you're coming up on shore. Like, the, you're going, like, as if the land is approaching you. And you think, oh, this is, must be wrong, and you want to make some sort of course correction, but it could just be the seabed rising up underneath that's not mapped, 
and if you swim past it, you know, all of a sudden it drops down again. Those things really mess with your head. Like if you think navigating can mess with your head a little bit at times, wow. do it underwater and then do it underwater at night and you're really just it throws you. Uh, no, no thanks. Um, so, how do you pace count underwater? Just is it just time? Do you know how fast you're moving? Yeah, you know it's funny. It's evolved a fair amount. You know what they do today is different uh, than when I was in, obviously. But yeah. back in our time, it was uh, time. You know, you you're just on mm. fins and you're just swimming and. But you're you're with the team, so usually like there's a piece of rope, it's called a sling rope, and we tie loops in it, and everybody might hang on to it so that we stay together. Uh, and you might assign somebody to track it, but eventually you have to just come up to the surface and literally just look to confirm things every mm. once in a while. And uh, you know there's yeah. all kinds of different ways to do that, but but it really was a visual thing. Now they've got GPS and other ways to do it, but uh, yeah. back then that's kind of how you did it. It was very manual. Cool. Sounds cool. Sounds sort of fun if you're into that. Um, how about this for an idea? How about an adventure race with no lights allowed? Yeah, I see. That's the funny thing is like, so adventure racing, you know, as it's, as it's struggled over the years in popularity, right? Like, you know, those of us mm-hmm. that are into it are, are passionate, die hard yeah. into it, will race anything. But then, you know, obviously race directors have to make money and the, the race has to work. And so that's where these like, oh, come on out. It's going to be fun. We're going to go up this rope ladder and down this slip and slide and we're going to do a puzzle. Yeah. And, you know, and obviously I don't personally go for that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, you get what they were after, right? They're trying to make it more mm-hmm. appealing to a broader audience. Ironically, yeah. the race I want to put on would scare half everybody away. And uh, so, yeah. you know, I would be totally into things like that, you know, like, yeah, sure. Like no lights or whatever it is i you know um obviously a personal call probably wouldn't be the most popular race but uh who knows well you know you could do just a night or just a orienteering section at night you know just five or six points with no lights that might be kind of fun yeah i mean you could do a, a number of things i think you could literally just make the terrain harder at some level um yeah you know we already go over some pretty hard terrain so not to say that that isn't the case but you know, I think there's just some, yeah. I, I kind of, for me, the kind of race I would set up would be more, you're going from point A to point B. You know, I love the idea, the spirit of adventure racing where everybody sets their own course and does what they want. And so like a ropes course to me, you know, in most of these races now, it's like you're running around a course, you get to a ropes course, which is a venue that you stay kind of in static moving around and then you leave it and continue on moving someplace. Like I would try to as much as possible make someone move along the course using it maybe not as like it doesn't need to be as as extreme as um some ropes courses are it could literally just be having more impromptu repels and you know river crossings and stuff like in there um that kind of stuff i think could be for me that'd be a kind of a fun race yeah you know the yeah you gotta yeah you rappel down the to the river and then you ascend up the other side and then you keep moving but yeah, you know, something like that or, like you you know, I love the idea like in adventure racing where we choose routes and so there could be options where you could learn to climb and like, you know, climb over this rock face or you could go around. And, and so I, those are always interesting points to me in races where, you know, you're trying to figure out do I bushwhack or do I stay on the longer, you know, you know, trail that's, you know, established. Yeah. And, uh, you know, any given time, one may be better than the other. But those decision-making points, are really interesting. Like I've wanted to put a running race on. This is probably one of my problems as an 
kind of a diehard adventure racer is that I've wanted to put in a, a running race on though, like where I call it, you get to a point in the race and you have to choose route A or route B and you could, you could theme them like, Hey, it's heaven or hell. And like, you don't know what mm-hmm. you're going to get in either one, but they could be like these interesting, uh, decorated, crazy experience stuff. And then they meet back up on the same point in the trail later on. And like, you could just have a series of decisions like that along a running race where you just, people just like have no idea what to expect. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so adventure racing yeah. could be like that as well. You know, not, not the theme thing, but you know, that decision-making point is a key part of the race. Yeah. Well, and quite honestly, I think Cowboy Tough does that fairly well because, you know, you got to make decisions because you're probably not going to clear all the points. So yep. that, yeah, I, no. I think that's one of the things I like. So, I agree. That's a strategy thing where it's like, you know, like you have to weigh the pros and cons. And, and, uh, yeah, those are my, some of my favorite moments in a race when you come out in front of another team or something and they're just like puzzled, like, how did you get there? Like, what did you do? <laughs> and, like, you know, you, you did something that was, uh, legal, but they just didn't figure it out or didn't expect it. And sometimes that can happen. And, you know, other times some races it just can't because of the way, you're moving along the course, yeah. but, but when, when possible, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, you, you know, my rule is if you ever see a team that's doing something completely different than everybody else, it's yoga slackers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, so when you were started adventure racing, I mean, how many, how many years did you race? Cause um, my guess is you, you sort of kind of quit at in after, Primal Quest Badlands, right? You didn't didn't do quite as many and kind of got more into just running? Yeah, well, I went a couple years after Primal Quest Badlands. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think what, what happened is, like, I, at that point, was just curious about this running 100 miles. Like, you know, you think about it. So, uh, oh, say Badlands. We use that as an example. That was, yeah. what, a 600-mile course. Yeah. And they, they chopped it up a little bit during it. And then, depending on how your nav was, you may have gone beyond. But yeah. <laughs> It was never, you know, that's a pretty long way. As you think back to the TV days of Eco Challenge, you know, you're talking like 300 mile courses, three, 400 mile mm-hmm. courses. Um, and I think Badlands is classic. I and, mean, you know, you live in that neck of the woods, but I kind of felt like they just totally underestimated the terrain and they thought, oh, this is going to be too easy. We got to make it longer, you know, like to yeah. make it harder because they're going to move so fast. And then all of a sudden, the lead teams were like way behind. And I think they were just little, everybody was a little caught off guard at that point. But, um, you know, afterwards, uh, what's great is after you do some big races like that, you know, you just make so many contacts in the networking. And so mm-hmm. at some level, doing more adventure races was uh, easier all of a sudden because now, you know, like you're getting more invitations to join up for teams and stuff. But yeah. um, at the same time, when you look at an adventure race, most of the sort of the regional ones, like how competitive are they? Like how many teams that go to the starting line are actually racing for the win? Um, yeah. And the, the number is actually pretty small. I mean, there may be some that think they are, but the number is actually pretty small, like how many are there. So you're really, it's a small pool, small network, and we all know each other that you're trying to like race with and race against. And, you know, it goes, we're always swapping people around and stuff. And, um, and then I was looking at trail running, like these 100-mile distances, these ultras and stuff, and that caught my attention. Like I'm like, okay, I know I can personally go there and compete at whatever level I'm capable of, and I'll figure that out once I do it. But 
um, you know, I'm going to go take a crack at that. And so I was seeking out kind of this experience of what's it like just to run a flat hundred miles. Cause you know, like I was mm-hmm. saying with the primal questing, like distance was already covered, but it's like, all right, what's yeah. it like just to run a hundred? And then of course, like I did it and I was like, oh man, I was horrible at that. I could, I could definitely do better. <laughs> and that's kind of what led me down the path of doing more and more. I was like, all right, I got to get better. I got to get faster. Um, and so, you know, but then in classic form is like, I mean, it's excited as can be about getting a cowboy tough. Cause like, you know, I really miss just like mixing it up on the bike and the boat and, you know, on foot yeah. as well, obviously. But, um, and I figured, you know, the nice thing about running ultras is, um, it would always be good training. Like I, in my mind, I never left adventure racing. I just figured it'd always be great training for adventure racing. Like you can, if you can run a hundred miles and you've got that portion covered, you know, just get your bike and boat skills up and you're probably gonna do okay. Um, yeah. so yeah, so that's kind of what led me that way was this curiosity. And then I was like, Oh no, I can do better. Yeah. Was and, and I know my answer to this and again, Paul, that's, but when you ran your first hundred mile, was it like, it's only a hundred miles and, and they marked, they marked the trail and then they have stuff for you. And what, did you kind of have that mindset? Like this ain't going to be that hard. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I, I think you do. I think when you're coming off adventure races and, you know, I don't know how many 24-hour races I've done and 36-hour races and stuff, and it's like, you know, it's like every time you push a distance, like say you go do the 10-day race, suddenly the, the one-day, suddenly the 24-hour race seems like easy, right? Like, oh, I barely need to pack, yeah. you know? But, yeah. you know, you just kind of get that confidence that increases. Well, I thought, like, you know, when you look, when you talk to a lot of people starting into ultra running or running, you know, their first 100-mile races – they're really intimidated by like, how do I eat? Like, how do I get calories? Mm-hmm. As an adventure yeah. racer, you do that all the time. Like, you know, your stomach's totally used to it. <laughs> you know, they're like, what's it like to run around at night? I don't know. I'm a little scared about that. You're like, whatever. Like, you know, we do that all the yeah. time. It's like, those, a lot of those things that, um, you know, people have to get used to and are new and it's just new for them. But, you know, there are things that we do every single race that are just not a big yeah. deal. And like the sleep deprivation one where, you know, like going overnight is just not that big of a deal for us. Like that's what we do racing yeah. all the time. And so, yeah, I think you look at running a hundred miles and a lot of the, the objective challenges for people are just taken away for you. You know, I think then yeah. you're really just stripping it down to like, what's it like to physically run and what pace can I run, you know, over that? Cause everything else is pretty, I don't know, normal to you. Yeah. Well, it's hard. Okay. From, from a watching point of view, shooting the the Black Hills 100 last weekend, I had to keep reminding myself they are running 100 miles and that's a long ways because I've been dealing with, you know, 200-mile bike rides and, and Paulette's going to do 500 miles and, and 10-day adventure races and it's just like, it's 100 miles, it's 24 hours. and I, But I kept, I mean, consciously have to remember it's really hard for these people. It's really well, hard it, for everybody. Yeah, I was say, it's really hard for everybody because one of the big differences is pace, you know, and just mm-hmm. sort of like now you're just like straight up running, you know, for that 100 miles and you're just like you're trying to move quick. And it's like like in all racing, you know, you have your your group up front that's like truly racing. You've got your kind of competitive age group group that's following behind. And then yeah. in, in the context of a 100-mile race, you know, the vast majority of them are kind of like endurance tourists. You know, they're out mm-hmm. there sort of checking out this endurance activity or sport. And, you know, for them, it may be this, like, life-altering uh, decision. 
uh, or moment, you know, where they, they achieve this goal. But, but I think you take anybody who's an adventure racer and you stick them in a 100-mile race, they'll be pretty worked at the end of it because they will have given everything they had to that 100-mile. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's they'll... it. You just give everything you have to whatever the distance is you're running, biking, paddling, or combining. Yeah, exactly. So um, just, and I think I've probably told you this before, but when people ask me about adventure racing and kind of want to, you know, if they don't know anything, you know, and talk to them a little bit, you always come up. Me? <laughs> from us. Uh, First, second day of Primal Quest, you guys are riding up the hill in the rain, and you just ride up behind Kim and just start pushing her up the hill. Oh, yeah. And it was just, you know, it's just one of these things that uh, when people say, it's one of the ways I use to describe adventure racing and what it's about. It's funny. And if you're wondering, the birds are helping me with the podcast tonight, so that's the noise. Yeah, no problem. Um, But it's funny you mention that because, like, one of the things I like uh, about adventure racing, you know, as a team is the, are those moments where you're just all pitching in for the good of the team. And mm-hmm. when a team is working well together, you know, to do that, it's, it's such an incredible feeling. Um, yeah, that was an interesting race in that, like, you know, I just found I, I spent so much time towing. It was funny because, you know, afterwards we went up uh, and did a 24-hour race uh, I think it was like a month or two later, went and did a 24 hour race up in the, uh, up in Washington area and, uh, a, a really strong racer who, uh, you know, can just smoke me at any day. Uh, I ended up towing him a little bit he didn't really need me to tow him, but it was more to equalize the speed or something like that. But that really tripped me out. Like, like, I think I just built so much leg strength from towing during Primal <laughs> Quest over that time. That suddenly yeah. I was just like riding up things like, oh, all right, I got this. Um, but that was, you know, and I've been towed before myself too. So it's like, yeah. it, it's kind of an interesting thing because like I've also been on teams where someone doesn't want to be towed, which is really annoying because you're just like, mm-hmm. like, put the ego. It just slows you down. Yeah, you like put the ego aside. Like, you know, that team in uh, Primal Quest you're talking about, like, I think we knew where our strengths were. We, we all really met on the internet. Like, it was really only, uh, mm-hmm. Kim was the only one who had prior race experience. And then yep. the rest of us, uh, Kim put together. Like, she'd kind of uh, pull us in. But it all worked. Like, everybody got, uh, it was Chris, Ian, Kim, and myself. And everybody got along super well. Everybody just pitched in to do whatever needed to be done to move forward. So it was the perfect experience in that sense. But I've had these other uh, experiences at times where someone just doesn't want to be towed and, like, or they can't hang in a pace line and they're like, they're falling back and you're trying to like, if you can't hang in the pace line, at least grab onto the tow line, but they don't want to do that. You know, that stuff is where it's frustrating. You know, um, yeah. I, I find it, you know, uh, my friend Ian, you know, he towed me in a race on a climb that I was just really lagging on. And, um, it's hard. like you know, from my ego, I'm like, gosh, usually I'm a really strong cyclist and here I am getting towed. And, um, but at the same time it was like, it was okay because, you know, that's just what it took that given day uh, to move forward. Yeah. And so, I don't know, that, that's a cool part of adventure racing is, is the, you know, how about like when you strip out someone's pack? And because uh, the other thing that was going on in Sarah Primal Quest team is we were swapping packs around or taking packs to like lighten loads or shift, mm-hmm. you know, when needed. I mean, anybody could carry their own weight, but yeah, it's all about yeah. movement. We actually, it's funny, in that, in that team, we moved pretty well on the bike, so I was excited about it. That's pretty cool. And just for a reference point in history someday, I'm 90, I was thinking about this, but I'm 95% sure 
you guys are the first team that I ever like interviewed on course in a race. So, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so people you know, can either blame you or thank you. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think Kim may have a curse for you in that. Like, cause if I remember right, we also saw you like during. So after we did that marathon, we went into the orange hearing, and yeah. then Kim her feet Kim were got tore up. Yeah, she got her feet were torn up already. She got these blisters, and she was so mad. <laughs> and I think she was uh, in a joking way. I think she was blaming you, yeah. like, ah, oh, if you hadn't been there, like, my feet would be fine. But you catch it on yeah. camera. <laughs> Yeah, we got to do that. So, um, <clears throat> all right, enough with the old school. Why, um, why did you? Why are you coming back at Cowboy Tough for your first adventure race in a while? Well, I got uh, just really lucky and was asked to be, you know, on a really uh, uh, on Team NorCal, and um, you know, I think Tim there has put together a great group of people, and uh, Rolly and Stephanie and myself, and. Um, I don't know, you know, like for me, I'm just so excited. I, I think at this point in this, so when I ventured off to do these hundreds and stuff, it was to see what it was like to get better at it. Um, I think at this point, having done, you know, like I, I guess I've done five of them now. Uh, I've done other distances as well along the way, but like yeah. I think I've answered that question, like if I can do it and if I can do it competently. The question uh, has been, but it doesn't mean I walk away from it. It just means like, all right, cool. I, I kind of got that one figured out. All right, now I'm going to take that and roll that back into adventure racing, the thing that I love to do because it hits all the sports I like. And, um, you know, all of a sudden you get this, like, knock on the door, if you will, and Tim asked if I'd race with those guys, and I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, absolutely. And so it's so much fun because I'm already back on my bike, you know, uh, two days after running Western States. I'm, I was biking this morning, and, uh, you know, uh, Ian bought a canoe just so we could practice canoes uh, paddling together, you know, for this. And so – you know, stuff like that. Like, it's just a great scene. Yeah. And, and and it goes back a little bit to, like, you were talking with, like, you and Paulette, like, distances, you know, the, the length of bike rides. I I like being able to go out and do long activities. And mm. the training for adventure races is just a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. It's just putting the time in. Um, all right, so one training question, because that, that sort of reminds me. Are you the uh, let's go see what's over the next ridge, or do you do – uh, the heart rate or a little both oh for myself you, yeah. you know it's funny is i am well there's a, a few answers in there my absolute nature is always like hey what's over that next hill let's go see i mm -hmm. i've sandbagged myself all the time doing that like my wife just like laughs because she knows that's what i do <laughs> and she'll be like <laughs> i'll be like i'll be back in two hours and i'll come back four hours yeah. later and she's like what happened and i'm like well <laughs> you know and I'll, yeah. I'll start in some story about how i saw something and i had to go check it out um, yep. But actually, uh, I, I, in trying to get ready for Western States this year, I really did uh, start using heart rate monitor much more seriously in my training. I've used them off and on a little bit, but this time I was really getting in the zone. I, I actually raced some marathons where I, uh, I raced purely based on my heart rate um, mm -hmm. and you know trying to average out the speeds and stuff. So I, I'm a little bit of a tinker and a dabbler in both. Like as it relates to fitness. Uh, even if I don't use a heart rate monitor at all, I absolutely believe in it. Um, yeah. So anyways, you know, there's a little bit of uh, both going there. Cool. So um, just uh, wrap it up here, but what else you got planned for this year after Cowboy Tough? Well, um, you know, my plan is to just really like turn my attention right back into more adventure racing and, um, mm -hmm. you know, hanging out with uh, the community, if you will, and just training. But I did get accepted into a race called uh, the Spine, 
which is over in the UK, and that's uh, mm-hmm. in January. So that's sort of the next big thing that's on the horizon. Uh, it should be interesting. Uh, it's a foot race. It's yeah. uh, 268 miles long. It goes from uh, the central part of England and York up to the Scottish border on uh, the Pennine Way Trail. And essentially, it's the equivalent of us running or racing like a PCT or an AT trail type thing. Yeah. In uh, the UK, this would be something they would through hike in the summer and but the difference here is besides you're trying to flat out run 268 miles, which goes back to your earlier point about the distances and, you know, yeah. is a hundred really long enough. But, um, the, the thing is, it's done uh, January 22nd. So it's a dead of winter. And so when you see most footage, it's just like sideways, bone chilling, cold, yep. you know, you've got to travel the tent and stuff. And so when they can, they run and when they, uh, obviously sometimes they have to hunker down, it <laughs> looks like a suffer fest. And uh, mm-hmm. that's that's on the radar there as well. So, you know, uh, adventure racing, uh, the spine, and then uh, we'll see what else. And I've also, on the side, been doing a bunch of mountain bike racing, and I'll just keep doing that as well. Yeah. So this, this speaks to the uh, adventure race community, but I'm actually pretty good friends with Ian, who was first last year, and Pavel, who was second at the spine. So. Oh. So you and I, I mean, have talked I mean, a lot. And uh, another buddy of mine, Dom Layfield, is going to do the Spine Challenge, the 100-mile one. He wants to set the course record this year coming up. So uh, when, I tell, mm. when I tell Dom, he's going to be quite excited. So we'll be, uh, we'll be circling back with you on this thing quickly. That'll be cool. Well, and here, okay, this, this is fun too. So Pavel, Pavel raced with Paulette in Patagonia at, at, at the uh-huh. AR. He's running now the GR, the Trans Pyrenees that Paulette's going to, the you know, 860k through the Pyrenees, and then a month later he's going to be racing at um, Red Gaspassi that I'm going to go shoot. <laughs> so like adventure oh, racing awesome. is this that, little yeah. tiny world, isn't it? Isn't it so cool? Well, that yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Like you know, I, I see things like ultra running and other stuff as offshoots of adventure racing. They weren't created as an offshoot of adventure racing, but if you're an adventure racer, they're all in our wheelhouse. They're all things yeah. like we can go do that help us if anything in an adventure racing. They don't hurt us. And it's another great thing about adventure racing is you're pretty much prepared to do a lot of different sports. Exactly. All right, this is my last question. I promise, but I say that a lot. Um, what did you say when you got your Western State acceptance? <laughs> what was the first words out of your mouth? Oh, uh, you know, it's funny. I was like, I was having to think for a second, and I just remembered. So I was actually, I had two things going on at the same time. I have uh, been applying for Hard Rock as well, and the drawing was on the same day, or I thought it was on the same day. Actually, Hard Rock turned out to be a day later. But so in my mind, it's on the same day. I uh, I go to the store, I open it up, and I start working. And uh, Western States uh, live uh, video cast their lottery, and Hard Rock actually uh, usually I run far, but they'll um, tweet it like so you can uh, mm-hmm. see the results. But so in my case, I think great, I'm gonna go to the store, I'll chill out, I'll watch the stuff, and I'll figure it out. And luckily, you know, we were really busy, so I'm like, yeah. okay, so I'm just like cranking away on the store floor. And I got some sort of message that alluded to something positive, but it was somewhat cryptic. I was like, 
like, what does that mean? But, you know, you know, in your heart of hearts, you're like, oh, I think that may have meant I got into one of my races. I wonder which one. What do they do? What is it? But I was too busy working. And then um, it was it was a few hours later. And then uh, I finally got back to the computer. Then I could see that I got in the Western States. And, like, some friends had just walked in the store, as I just find out. I kind of walked out simply with, like, you know, my arms up going, yes, <laughs> like, I'm in. <laughs> and, uh and so it was great. The other, the other thing is I don't have great lottery luck, and a lot of these races are lottery. I mean, Western mm-hmm. States, to get in, your first year you have one ticket. You had a 2.6 or 2.7% chance of getting in this year. Um, yeah. I had been trying to get in for three years, which is considered fairly early to get in. So I had a 13% chance of getting through the lottery. So, uh, yeah. you know, just the fact that I even got through, I was, I was like, you know, over the moon excited. And uh, – so yeah, I was I was just excited, and you know I'm really happy to say that this last weekend my Western States experience was uh, you know exactly what I hoped my first Western States experience would be. Cool. So, all right. Well, I'm gonna I'll see you in about two weeks. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. It's gonna be great. Yeah, that's uh, I love Cowboy Tough. <laughs> yeah, so I think you guys are gonna have a great time. Um, from what I can tell, and I can tell a lot, but um, so you can tell. All right, you everybody else. Me. Yeah, you know, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. But you're way tougher than me, so I wouldn't get that done, and we'd both be in trouble. Yeah, so. right. All right. Well, All thanks, right. Randy. All right. So everybody else, uh, tell them to go fast, take chances, and thanks, Canis. We'll see you in a few days. Yeah, few anytime. Weeks. All right. Sounds good. See Bye. you there. All right. Cheers. I want to live, I want to give I've been a miner for a heart of gold It's these expressions I never give That keeps me searching for a heart of gold And I'm getting old me searching for a heart of gold and I'm getting old For a heart of gold I've been in my mind It's such a fine line That keeps me searching For a heart of gold And I'm getting old That keeps me searching For a heart of gold And I'm getting old
searching for a heart of gold. I've been a miner for a heart of gold, and I'm getting old. Yeah, I think that was okay. Yeah.